The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Blaming us for just one second and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Jeff Maciolik, here to announce show number 121 with guest Kathleen Dollard, recorded live Friday, July 8th, 2005. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net. Training developers to work smarter and now offering hands-on VBNet and ASPNet classes remotely online at www.franklins.net. And by Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASPNet web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers, online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who just accidentally inserted the wrong type into his class, Carl Franklin. Ouch! I hate it when that happens. That's going to leave a scar. That's going to hurt. So uh, thank you very much. This is Carl Franklin. You're listening to another, the 121st stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers. And uh, it's, a, it's a great, horrible, drizzly day here in New London, Connecticut, on the east coast of the United States of America. What's it doing over on your side of the uh, North American continent, Richard, Richard Why, Campbell? Why, it's a great, horrible, drizzly day in Vancouver, British Columbia. How how does that happen? It's probably it's beautiful spooky, in Texas it? right now. <laughs> it's all sunny everywhere else, but not here. And, uh, you know, usually we don't um, introduce the guest until after we've had a chance to banter a little bit and read some mail. And But uh, since she's right here in the studio, I can't really ask her not to laugh or not to, to join in. So welcome, Kathleen Dollard. Hi. How are you doing this evening? I'm doing okay. How are you? Doing fine. You want to say hi to Richard out there? Yeah. Hi, Richard. How you doing, Kathleen? Yeah, maybe it's sunny back home for me in Colorado. Probably oh, is. Maybe. But didn't you guys get real snow there? Not this time of year. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised, though, the way the weather's <laughs> going around here. Well, this is like the weekend of Sailfest, and uh, Sailfest is the annual bash that New London throws with tall ships and fireworks, and the Grucci fireworks is supposedly like one of the biggest displays in the world. And uh, we have a great view of it from the fifth floor here, but it's raining, and uh, that kind of puts a damper. I, I saw my friend in the elevator on the way down, and he said, oh, I got a booth, man. I'm bumming. We can't leave him. He has to go to the booth in the rain. Oh, well. Enough you of know, that. You're not going to believe this. This week is Vancouver Sea Festival, and their tall ships are in the harbor right now. You're kidding. And it's raining. 
Oh. This is too weird, Richard. It's very spooky. Well, look at that. Listen to this. Hear that? So, so not only is it raining, but there's a fire somewhere. That's just really <laughs> weird. Hey, at least, but we don't have big uh, ocean liners that crash into the docks here in New London. It was a ferry. <laughs> and they figured out what broke. What? Somebody's it, brain? It was a 75-cent cotter pin. No. Fell off a nut. Nut dropped out, released this governor, caused the engines to overrev, so they shut off. Oh. Nice. That's horrible. A, t- a 75 cent cotter pin. So it's all Took about. It, yeah. Left a 7,000 uh, ton ferry boat without any power. Talk Although, about it. To the captain's credit, he nobody died, no injuries. He ran the boat into a wharf like it was a speed bump, <laughs> destroyed 24 boats along the way. And, uh, but, you know, everybody survived. They've pulled the boat off. In fact, it went back into service today. Jeez. That's talk about your architecture problems, huh? Yeah. Well, you know, Richard, I think it was show 116 where we, we I was reading the mail and it was just another great uh, email of praise. And I said, you know, how come nobody ever flames us? And uh, so we asked people to send us flames. And what we got was tepid, tepid. I mean, no flames at best, polite uh, suggestions or criticisms. <laughs> A lot of them were good criticisms, too. They were like, oh, yeah, we could probably do that better. There was some great emails, great ideas. Great ideas, but that's I think people are missing the point. We want flames, all right? Cuz we always get praise and and polite, you know, suggestions and criticisms. We wanted to get a flame. So, you know, we're we're getting tired of it. So, we want some some flames and and a few people are finally beginning to get the idea. Scott sent us a flame via my blog at weblogs.asp.net/cfranklin. He says, "This is was great. Listen to this. Hence, horrible villain." Or I'll spurn thine eyes like balls before me. I'll unhair thy head. Thou shalt be whipped with wire and stewed in brine, smarting in lingering pickle. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And it's not whipped, W-H-I-P-P-E-D. Oh, no, it's apostrophe D. Whipped. You know, the old English pronunciation. All right, well, anyway. This, that was a good one. Then, then we get into like the more you know traditional modern flames. This one uh, came from Mike Scott in the UK. He says, "Hi, Carl and Richard. You asked for flames, so here it is. Your show sucks. I have been listening for about nine months, and I have downloaded about a third of your back catalog to my pocket PC. In all those shows, you have still not expounded a single solution to world poverty or world peace." Okay, so Microsoft, with a dollar sign, say connect the world together with web services and CLR is the new Esperanto. But who is going to feed the hungry programmers of the world? Who is going to stop the standards wars? And hey, where's The Rock? No Motorhead, no Deep Purple. Hey, not even any Pink Floyd. What's with a jingly happy tune at the start of the show? Real rock makes your ears bleed. (laughs) Why do you insist on making people smarter? My job is all about getting people out of the messes they get themselves into. This making people better programmers is dangerous. If you don't (laughs) stop it soon, I'll be out of a job and then I'll have to do some real work. Was that ranty enough for you or do you want some more? Do you still give away crappy stuff? If so, please send so that I can burn it in disgust. Grr. (laughs) That's pretty good. I think we're going to send him a, a, a cup or a mug or lunchbox. Something that or some, won't burn. Some <laughs> condoms or something. Um, <laughs> this one came from Christopher Bransma. 
And he says, hello, Carl and Richard. All right, you arrogant, flame-loving, waistband, expanding, pasty, white, no-sun-seeing, VB-gloating schmucks. You want a flame? You can't handle a flame. I read Slashdot for breakfast and like it. Is that what you want? A vast sea of Slashdot readers with a collective IQ even smaller than yours, raving like rabid idiots to you? Is that what you want? Well, apparently, if you're willing to appeal to Rory for a decent flame, you are. So you, Carl, you loudmouth, blathering the obvious to your heart's content, arrogant singer-songwriter acting like the favorite son of Bill Gates himself, God's gift of binary logic, never seen a garbage collector you didn't like, just who do you think you are? Chris Sells? <laughs> <laughs> but at least I don't have to mentally conjure images of you in a kilt. Or is that, <laughs> or is that yet? Speaking for all the listeners out there, if you have worn a kilt, I don't want to hear about it. And what is with Rory leaving? He said he wanted to go, but I don't buy that. My speculation is that you couldn't afford Rory anymore. The show isn't bringing in the big bucks like you expected, is it? So you had to outsource Rory's job to low-cost Canada. That proves <laughs> one thing crystal clear. You are just a talking head for the man, Carl. Taking another good American job and shipping it over the border. So, Richard, you scab, look out, man. Mexico is right around the corner. Now, since I know your simian brain can't handle all of this, I will have to resort to subliminal messaging to deliver my final blows. If you social laps, send swag, could talk about some technology, OLAP, outside your comfort zone, analysis services, and get a guest, Moshe Panamsky, Robert Zare, who could talk, we might have a show. Ralph Kimball, somebody please. How about it, Carl? VBNet Nazi. Do you dare <laughs> stepping out, send swag, of that carefully created comfort zone? I wear an extra large. Maybe then you could grow <laughs> something other than your perfectly combed hair. OLAP, lots of changes in 2005. Sincerely, Christopher Bransma. <laughs> Now that, my friends, is a flame, and <laughs> nice. Christopher gets a hoodie, huh? Woohoo! That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. And so, for our formal introduction, Kathleen Dollard is a consultant, author, trainer from that. How, how's that for no segue, Richard? Yeah. <laughs> All right, Kathleen Dollard. She's a consultant, author, trainer, and speaker. She's been a Microsoft MVP since 1998 wrote Code Generation in Microsoft.net for A-Press, and is a regular contributor to Visual Studio Magazine. She speaks at industry conferences such as VS Live, Dev Connections, and Microsoft Dev Days, as well as local user groups. She's the founder and principal of Gen.net. Her passion is helping programmers be smarter in how they develop by learning to use Visual Studio, XML-related technologies, .NET languages, code generation, unit testing, and other tools to their full capacity. She's currently working on full lifecycle improvements, such as better debugging and capturing business intent in metadata and test definitions. When not working, she enjoys woodworking, snowshoeing, and kayaking, depending on the outdoor temperature. Welcome, Kathleen. Hi. Woodworking, huh? Yeah, not this year. I didn't know about that side of you. Yeah, but not you, this year. Do you, like, get the, you know, the bandsaws and the... And the I don't have a bandsaw. I've got, uh, you know, a table saw and lots of tools like that, but the bandsaw just doesn't fit in the garage along with all the other junk I've got. So is it like this old house or the new Yankee workshop over there? Or No, it's more like just playing around a little bit. Birdhouses? So, more like birdhouses, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not making your own furniture? Well, I, I took a wall down to my house, and until I kind of get that back up, we got to kind of focus there. <laughs> Good. And that was 2003's fault. 
One of the betas took me too long to install and I took a while down. <laughs> Generally, it's after I install the beta and it's hosed my machine that I start taking walls down. Yeah, yeah right. With my head. Yeah, but this year I'm not doing uh, either woodworking or kayaking, although hopefully I can get back in the shop in the next couple of weeks because my shoulder's still mending from um, an injury in January. Oh, yeah, that was the mystery injury. We never really found out what happened. <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> that's right. You didn't. Are we going to? <laughs> Probably not. Is this uh, one of the the uh, stupid meter issues? Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. All right, now we got to hear. Come on. You can tell us. We're all friends here. Um, okay. Well. I, I make a bonehead move every year. <laughs> okay. You kind of got to imagine this because it's not funny unless you really get the picture going. Okay. Okay. At two o'clock in the morning, I'm walking across my bedroom and I catch the toe of one foot in the pajama leg of the other foot. So it's like all of a sudden while I'm leaning forward, <laughs> my feet are tied together. That's awesome. Unfortunately, I was oh, going God. into a very heavy underbed dresser that I have with my head. Oh. And so the good thing about this injury actually is that I did protect my head. I broke my arm, you know, tore my arm up, tore out my shoulder. Really? Did a bunch of damage, but... I'm still thinking, which is yeah. Avoided the concussion, but yeah. need orthopedic surgery. You dislocated your shoulder, is what you're saying? Um, well, I actually I tore the rotator cuff and oh I God. broke the upper bone, um, fractured it in about uh, half a dozen places. Wow! So we got the bone fixed, and then we did the surgery May fifth, and now I'm back to where I, I'm lifting weights again. Um, wow. So I'm now on. I'm in serious recovery, and so I can see the end of it. But I'm not supposed to get back in a kayak this year. So oh wow, it's going to be a very very. That's more long serious recovery. than I thought. Yeah. Well, you know, we're taking it one step at a time, and I'm happy to be where I am. I can carry my own luggage, so that's a good and thing. And you can still write code. That's good, and you can still think. That's the best part, as you it, said. Yeah, you know, he t never told me I couldn't. I couldn't keyboard. So even when I was doing <laughs> it, where I literally had to pick my hand up to take it from the keyboard to the mouse, my uh. other hand had to lift it. Um, I never had to stop coding. We were down in the coffee shop uh, just an hour ago talk, going over what we were going to talk about. And I don't know as if we'll get it all in in an hour. It may take a little bit longer than that. But the last time you were on the show, we were talking about code generation. And uh, you're still doing that, I guess. But you're, you're more, getting a lot more into Whidbey these days and, uh, and what that's got installed. Why don't we just sort of touch on code generation a little bit, what you're doing now, if anything different. Yeah. Um, code generation right now, I'm... A lot of my stuff's kind of been on, on hold right now because I'm trying to figure out where to take it for a couple of reasons. Um, mm. One of which is that I think people wanted a lot more of a full solution. And my goal was to teach people how to do code generation. And what was perhaps should have been obvious but wasn't is people don't want to do code generation. They want the end result, which is a right. fully functional system that they're getting very simply. And they want it very cheaply. And I don't think that those are the wrong goals. I just think that that wasn't the goals I was trying to meet. And so um, the, the stuff that I had out as samples, I think people have tried to take away. And I think there's been some frustration with that. But we've got so much coming in Whidbey that I can't really see. Um, I'm not sure that I'm, how much more work I'm going to put into the 2003 versions because I think a lot of the picture changes in Whidbey, which is now right around the corner. Yeah, you know, I had that same issue with, uh, with the book that I wrote all these years ago, or the two books that I wrote, is that I got a lot of, A, complaints that the, the code, that the DLLs were missing. The DLLs were missing, and of course, I, I you know I wasn't shipping a tool; I was shipping source code as an example of how to teach what you want to do with it. And you know, people were thinking that it was a product. Oh, I'm going to get a you know two hundred dollar, three or four hundred dollar product for a forty dollar book price. Yeah, and I you know I did have samples that were intended as a starting point, um, but you know the size and complexities of people's applications vary a lot, and 
I don't consider myself to be, um, although I'm working in that direction quite a bit right now, but especially in the 2003 timeframe, I really wasn't an architecture guru. And that's why right. I used Rocky stuff because, yeah. um, you know, CSLA was there. Rocky Latka. Yeah. Exactly. Rocky Latka's CSLA stuff because it gave me a leg up and I didn't have to write about architecture. Mm. Um, and so anyway, that's, that's kind of where we're at. Um, the problem is complexity and sure. complexity and templates is still complexity and, um, you know, part of my perspective, because I, I tend to be more macho than I should be, is that CSLA was extremely challenging templates to write at the level that I that I did. Mm. And so they're very complex. And so they're very hard to maintain. And all those, I think, are, are it, it's a whole set of things that I think we can do better. And I, I'm just trying to balance where to go with what we've already got out there and trying to improve that. And I have sort of been on a hiatus because of the injury and all from the, right. my website at the same time. And you've been so. doing a lot of research into uh, Whidbey, right? Absolutely. I'm spending a ton of time in Whidbey. I'm actually doing the majority of my consulting work now in Whidbey. Um, I've got a couple of clients that are ready to go there. And there's some awesome things that change the picture as we go forward. So let me ask you this. You've obviously been working with this quite a bit now. What's uh, what, what, what just takes your breath away? What's the coolest thing? Well, the coolest little tiny thing is sure. is is binding list. Uh, yeah. Binding list of T. Okay. Yeah. So everything you ever did to make your custom objects work just kind of vanishes into mm. this one little line of code. And all of a sudden you can bind your custom collections to the new data grid view. And mm. boy, I mean, it's small, but it just absolutely blows you away how much code that drops out. Right. It's a combination of uh, the generics of T and then a bindable collection base. Yes. And- Yes. All that code goes away. And the better designs that are in WinForms. WinForms has come a really long way. I think that um, it, it was – when we see it, we're going to just really feel how infantile the first version was and how much better this version is. Yeah, I, to- I totally agree with you there. I'm much much more impressed with it. Um, all the little binding details that uh, drove you nuts. Not only binding, but, of course, lack of implementation. You right. know, that they the, – I don't know of anybody who uses the real data grid on a WinForms. You know, most people are using Infragistics or right. One or someone – third-party tool. Right. And so I, I think that that's fine when you need the complexity of those third-party tools, mm. but it's really unfortunate to be forced to that just to put a combo box into a data grid, yeah, yeah. which now we can do. So we've right. moved forward there. And I'm I'm really, I'm easily amused. And so I'm really excited about the little lineup things in WinForms. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. <laughs> it's just cool. <laughs> it's really well done, you know, and I, I just am vastly amused by that. Yeah. Very cool. So obviously generics is a big deal. Yes. Now, you know, we haven't talked about gen- – we've, we've given lip service, but we haven't talked about what generics is since Jubal Lowy came on and told us uh, quite a while ago now. And I don't think anybody was really paying attention, um, <laughs> you know, to generics. It was sort of like something coming – oh, yeah, it's kind of cool. We don't really know. So what I'd like you to do for the listeners is let's sort of take a big picture approach and step back and spend a little time just discussing what this is. And, and uh, then we'll move on to why people should care. Okay, let's start with sort of, like you say, the big picture, and that's understanding what these things actually are. And what they are is in a way that at runtime, a new class is created for you that's specific to the type information that you've given it. So the type information we can think of as just the class for right now. It also could be a structure, an interface, but for simplicity, let's just think of it as a class. Mm. So we can have, um, and let's start with the generic method, because I think that that's a good entry point into understanding it. So a generic method is a method, um, for instance, it could be a um, um, my mind just went blank on, on an idea, but it it could it could be any method. Um, 
Sub foo. Thank you. A sub foo. Okay. A sub foo. And instead of having the sub foo just like take an object, because you sometimes are going to need the sub foo to do things with integers, and sometimes you're going to need it to do By things object, with strings. By object, you mean system.object. Exactly. I yeah. mean system.object. So instead of becoming as generic as we can and losing all type safety and a yeah. lot of performance, we're going to actually create a class at runtime that's going to be of the type we're interested in. And that could be um, it could be an integer, it could be a string, it could be an invoice class, it could be um, a serializable attribute class, it could be literally anything um, that we want to give that at runtime. And, and when you when you when you instantiate the object, you pass the type in. Is that how? Um, yes, you instantiate the object, and and because that appears in your code, then the class is actually created at runtime. And this is if you've done C it's very similar to templates, but you want to throw out your concerns about code bloat because they are gone. That's not part of the the issues, Oops. and you want to throw out. ATL. We're not we're trying to rebuild that. That's or the STL, the whole C plus plus. Let's make a monster out of this. That's let's, not. Let's what assume we're doing. the listener has no experience with templates or C plus plus. Okay. okay. And so once we create this generic um, method, and then we we've got it, we can call it um, as the method itself. Right now, we've we've sort of we don't know anything about this type, so we can't do very much with it. So we have to take it one step further in order to do useful things, and that is to put constraints on it. And so, for instance, if we put a constraint on this, that it was going to be something inherited from a base biz object that you have in your infrastructure, then, okay. then we could do all of the things to that we could do to anything in your, in your, uh, base, your base biz um, object. So we can, we can do those things that are common because we've constrained it to that. But the difference is, and the very key thing that's kind of hard to get at the beginning, is that we're actually working with that class. We're actually, we have a copy. We can think of that, although it's in memory and so it's not something you have to worry about on yeah. Uh, bloat, we have a copy of this method for your invoice class and another copy for your customer class and mm. another copy for each of the classes that you've got. Mm. And so it liter it's very strongly typed. Um, your compiler is going to tell you if you blow it. So if you create this and you say it's got a constraint of only being something derived from your base business class yeah. and you hand an integer, it will blow up a runtime, which right. it wouldn't if you were taking a system.object. And you, you know, the thing I like to think about generics and the first question I had for Javal when I first heard about this was... You know, we have variants like in the VB mindset, and we have system object to do sort of late bound things in a in the inheritance kind of way in .NET. And you know, what's the difference between uh, you know a generic type and using, let's say, a variant or an object? The difference to me is that you get the benefit of late binding because you get to decide at runtime what the type is. But you also get, because it's all built at compile time, right, you have the, the type safety and, and all of the benefits. Of, so it's like having the best of both worlds. It absolutely is. Right. Um, and, and it opens up some new doors to us in terms of where we put our code. And that's one of the really exciting things from an architectural point of view. Yeah. And so what are some of the, I mean, you, you mentioned the constraints of the business objects. Obviously, custom collections become very easily. Your binding list of T is a perfect example. Yeah, that's great. The, um, so what we've done, what, what they've done for us is the .NET framework contains a great new set of collections. And I'm going to go so far as to certainly say that if you're ever using anything in 2005 out of the old system.collection class, you should be able to explain why. Now, I'm not mm. going to say there's no reason to do that because... Backward compatibility. Perhaps. Well, backward compatibility, compatibility with backward programmers. You know, there's various things you might... <laughs> <laughs> it's a different kind of compatibility. <laughs> yeah. There's some things you might... <laughs> 
There may be a reason. I haven't seen it yet, is my point. I don't know what the reason might be. Because the new generic classes are so compelling. They have a lot more functionality. They've got uh, filtering. They've got fines. They've got all these new features. Plus, they're going to be strongly typed. Because they can be strongly typed. They have these features, right? Some of the things, actually, I think they could have done before and they didn't. I think they've Mm. also said, how do we do collections right, really right? And so I think we have new features as well. But the combination is really quite sweet. And so now if I create a collection and I say this is going to be a collection of um, invoices, I can't put anything else in there. And I can't. The only way I can do that in 2003 is to inherit from collection base. Mm. And if I inherit from collection base, I have a lot of work to do. That work completely goes away and I get it basically for free. And if I have 450 um, business entities, creating um, something derived from collection base for each one of those is going to be a real pain in the backside to do. Yeah. All right. So other than the collections, can you see, can you see, I can, I can sort of, you know, hear the, the questions going on in people's minds that are like, okay, besides the collections, when else am I going to use generics? When am I going to build a class that isn't a collection class that needs, uh, you, know, you know, that needs to have this dynamic sort of type uh, feature? Well, let's look at the infrastructure. And there's a couple of scenarios in which you might want to do this. And let's start with one that's a little bit visual, because I think that might help um, people that are trying to get their head around this. And it is hard to get your head around. Once you see it, you see it, but it's kind of hard to get there. So let's say that we ha- we're going to create um, a tree. And this tree was going to have different items at each node. So it's mm. going to have invoices and customers and invoice um, I- um, line items. So this okay. is all going to be in the tree. Now, it- the way that I want to build this is I want to attach, actually attach the objects. It's a fairly small set of data. And this helps us see where we're going. I actually want to attach the, the object to each one of the tree nodes. So the tree node mm. is going to, I'm going to have a new um, item to, that I'm going to add to that. So I'm going yeah. to add a new property by deriving from it. Now, the way I would do that in 2003 is I would create three new classes. And those new classes would be, they would each take one of those things so I could be strongly typed. And that's the whole point. I don't want to just right. put anything in this tree right. node. I want to put one of these things. It. You don't want to have it return an object and cast right. it when you use it. Exactly. Yeah. And so now what I can do is I can do that with a generic and I can create a Trino that's going to take a generic. And then if I want to, I can put additional constraints and things on that. But then I'm explicitly saying, okay, put an invoice in here, put something right, else in there. Just to back up. So you might have tree.nodes.add, and then you're passing in uh, an object and the type of, right? And what, whatever type it is. And so then when you go to access that with, a, say, an item, it's the actual cast, cast to the actual object type. Right. In that case, I would probably make a generic class, which means that this, the type parameter applies to the entire class, not just okay, the method. Yeah, sure. And then I can make my constructor be um, demanding of that particular type. Interesting. So that's probably the way I would approach that problem. Another example is, um, and, and uh, this is another thing that, you know, and I'm, I'm a big fan of Raki Lakas, um, that he's... Um, brought out is that when you're creating a new business object, if you use a constructor, you have the possibility of winding up with an invalid business object hanging around. If you call a shared method, then you don't have that possibility because the shared method will either return a valid business object or it's going to return null. Okay. Hmm. Before, in order for that, that we're going to call it a create method for right now. Okay. In order for the create method to return an invoice or a customer or something else very specific, we had to put that code into a, a class that was specific to that entity. We right. couldn't put it in the base class. It wouldn't work. Okay. With, const- with generics, we can make our base class can be a generic class itself. 
And once we do that, this create method can now move into the base class out. Mm. And every yeah. time we move code out of that business-specific entity class into the base class, we've done a whole lot in terms of making it a more robust, more maintainable system because we literally have less code to maintain, and that should be the goal. Right. It, it, the goal is not having to rewrite that plumbing, the collection goo for every class that you need to drag and drop into your into your project. Right. For- and- Absolutely. And that's beneficial whether or not you're using code generation. Um, And it can greatly simplify our templates. And so that's one of the reasons I'm excited about generics, building architectures that you use code generation, use um, the best possible architectures, and use generics all lumped in together. I think that's the real future of where we're going to be. And it's really exciting stuff. So I guess the, uh, you know, the the challenge is, is going to be how, you know, learning to write code with generics. I mean, where, you know, anytime that you see something that returns an object, you should be thinking... Uh, you know, how can I make this better? But, you know, I think there's even a larger point on than that, Carl. This is, once again, getting back to this idea of really maintainable code, that it's not about the classes you knew about at the initial design. It's the classes you didn't know about. Yeah, Those, sure. The stuff you got to add later that it's not going to be that difficult to enforce. Thank you, Richard. That's great because it is important to point out that I am now writing code via generics that do not know what type they're going to run on and do not need to know that. So a class, right. no. something can be created later and then it can be used as part of the generics using all of this plumbing infrastructure that we've already built. And so that definitely is an important That's point. It's just of so it. huge. Yeah. And what it is is, you know, we've had templating structures like this before. But we've always had to build them ourselves. You know, I, I deal an awful lot in transactional processing, and we build a set of classes around dealing with credit card processing because every, every vendor's got a different ver- formula for how they want theirs to work. And we've always built that framework ourselves, and we're really getting it in the box now that the generics are going to offer us that sort of base-level structures that we don't have to invent this all ourselves. That's true. And it is going to leave us some inventing to do to carry it beyond where they've done it. The, the collections they've done beautifully, but that's kind of where they've ended it right now. So we still have more exploration to do, which can be good. I think we'll learn a lot from it because as we'll be doing it sort of as a um, um, as a community. And that's that's one thing I think that's important while it's, you know, the Patterns and Practices Group is working hard. Um, it's also important that as a community we develop because what comes out of our collective consciousness, I think, is often the strongest solution to something. How about uh, partial classes? What if you, uh, you know, I, I, I really think that the partial class implementation, at least in Windows forms and in a lot of the, you know, in the component class and things that programmers are going to use is, is really cool because it sort of, uh, it sort of takes a little bit of intimidation, especially for Visual Basic, you know, out of the picture. Um, but once you sort of figure out that you can use partial classes for anything, you know, there's some very interesting things that you can do with them. And, of course, there's some, you know, issues that you have to think about. So so what do you think about this? Well, again, I ask this a lot because people seem to assume that because I do code generation and it for certain types of code generation, it's great um, that I'm going to just love partial classes and, and they don't solve all the problems. The way I think people mm. should think about partial classes, it's a way to isolate code into a different file. It's that simple. If you try to make it bigger than that, I think that's when you kind of get thrown off. One reason we might want to do that is certain types of generated code, like what's in WinForms. I love that that stuff is gone. I think it's yeah. great. So I'm, I'm really all for that. Um, but when we're doing, uh, well, the second thing is we may also want to do it for other reasons. For instance, if you're working on a project, you're under the gun and you have, say, a two or three week period, maybe not even the life of your project, where you desperately need two people to be down and dirty on the same class, but in different parts of it. Mm. There's no reason you can't split that class into two files, 
you're going to have some muckiness in your source code, but it's going to track it. You create right. a new partial class. During that time, two people can go as hard as they need to in that code. They cannot run into each other because they're in different files. Because we have so much in our world that's associated with files, we can take advantage of it um, on that. But taking it one step further, um, so once we think about that, we also have to look at where partial classes have issues. And the issue is that we've worked for, what, 40 years developing an object-oriented scheme Mm -hmm. so that we can have a base class implementation and we can override that. That's not supported with partial classes. It is literally one class. All those files are slammed together. So I can't have two constructors with the same parameters. Um, these kind of problems arise. Now, there is a way to work with that problem, and that is to use events as opposed to right. using direct methods. Right. Events don't have a, a basic implementation you're overriding. They have no implementation that you're then providing from. Mm. So I have a personal uh, kind of dislike of using events for that purpose. And so for I anticipate that for the code generation designs I'll be working on in Whidbey, I do expect to continue to use the pattern of a generated class that then has a derived class underneath it. And it's all of your specialized code, everything that you're writing uh, to be very specific goes into that derived class. Um, and, and so I expect that that model won't go away. Things as, as simple as validation can be t- pretty tricky to try to do just with partial classes in a co-generated um, infrastructure environment. Yeah. Do yourself a favor and check out our friends Data Dynamics website, datadynamics.com, makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for uh, Windows Forms and ASP.NET. Very nice stuff. You compile the uh, the reports right into your application, ship them with your assemblies. Uh, has all the great features you come to expect in a reporting engine, and you can use uh, ActiveX controls right in the reports too. So, great stuff. Uh, Data Dynamics has been an excellent sponsor of .NET Rocks uh, for a long time. They, uh, you know, they deserve a little bit of uh, your love and attention. So, go check them out at www.datadynamics.com. You know, I think I might debate with you the idea, Kathleen, that the two of us might work on the same class for an extended period of time. Wouldn't it naturally mean we should break that class apart? I mean, if there's two completely dissimilar areas in a class like that, isn't we, aren't we talking about two classes? Well, I guess I'm being pragmatic on that, Richard. I, I kind of agree with you, but if I'm at crunch point on a project, I'm not going to go splitting classes. Yeah, yeah. It definitely, it, that might be more pure, but we're not talking about purity here. We're talking about deliverables. Yeah, exactly. And I'm talking about what do we do when we're running into a problem and two people are smashing into each other and we had no options before and now we do. And that's when you would have two people working on the same class at the same time. Yeah, in both- the crisis. The problem is, I think <laughs> what we've really done is we're taking known problems and turning them into unknown problems. Hmm. 
right? We okay. We know we have this conflict over sharing this file. We know we have this uh, the, this sign out conflict. So now what we're going to do is going to split it into two files, and we're going to introduce a whole raft of new problems we know nothing about. Well, I don't know that you are introducing new problems as long as you perceive it as a single class. It is a single class. They just now resides in two files, and as long as you continue to think of it that way, then I I don't know what kind of problems you might run into. You might, but um, I'm seeing that as actually a pretty clean solution because. If it's, I'm going to say it's still your class, Richard, and you're still going to own most of it, but everything I start needing to work on, I'm going to start yanking out of there. Um, you know, and, and that way I'm going to be able to put it someplace else and work on it, and you can keep it checked out of, of source control, except when I steal those pieces of code from you, and then we've got to work together to get those right. co- that moved. I'm just thinking stuff like stacking constructors. You know, we're each going to build pieces of this and, and we're going to run in on those kinds of points. I'm definitely not looking at when we're first designing the class. I mean, I think then you're right. If we, if we can if we can look, identify the problem that early, I completely agree with yeah. you. I'm talking about crunch point. We're trying to get something done. And at that point, trying to redesign a class into two classes is just not the right answer. Well, let me let, let me sort of clarify uh, something that you said pretty quickly. So just in case anybody missed it. And that is, you know, first of all, when you have a partial, when you use partial classes, you essentially, you, you have a class split up over two or more files. That's essentially what it is. And then the uh, code in those, those files is put together by the compiler at compile time into a single class. Great. Uh, you know, the, the, the example that I wanted to talk about was type data sets, for example, because with a type data set, right, the, the code is generated now as a partial class. It uses the partial keyword. So it would be easy for you to just create another VB file that, that has, uses the same class, partial class structure, and then you can sort of add your logic to it. You know, logically speaking, this is sort of what you would naturally do. You know, put your business logic in that separate class. So if you ever needed to regen your type, type data set, uh, and this, you're not going to whack that code. And so this is why you said, you know, people naturally think code generation partial classes. And uh, this is an idea, actually, that Rocky Lotka brought up on uh, on the last show that he was on. And by the way, uh, Rocky is going to be joining us here on the phone in in a little bit to talk about some of this stuff a little Great. bit more. Yeah, he just uh, IM'd me and said he wanted to call in. And uh, and there's challenges there, as you mentioned, and I just want to slow down and talk about them a bit. So if you've got the general, the default implementation in a type data set is to override some of the, the virtual methods in there. And I think one of them is on row changed. Right or on row change because in type data set they need mm-hmm. to hook that to do something. Right. So if in your second class here in your second file of this partial class you also want to override that on row change, you can't because it's already overwritten in the other in the other file. Right. 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 So so therein lies one of your issues and and the thing that uh, Rocky and I were both trying here is what if you grabbed a with events reference to the underlying data table, which you want to get these events on, right? Or get these virtual methods on an override. And as a different reference, you know, to the same object. And then grab that somehow in, uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the logic portion of it. And then you can handle events, which is what you were talking about. You can handle the events as opposed to the, uh, you know, the, the overrides. Right. And in that case, the underlying structure from the, in the, um, in the .NET framework is supporting that by supporting events. Um, and so that's cool. Yes. If it wasn't supporting those events and you didn't have control over that class, you'd have a little bit bigger problem. And I'd just like to also add that these things are so much one class that that with events variable that you just added, if it's already in the other class, the one right. that you don't have much control over, yeah. you can use it. 
That's cool. Yeah, that's right. you've got access to it. If you don't, you can add it yourself. So right. you 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 get the the union of of all this code and all these variables and everything is literally one class, and that which can, gives you some good flexibility and a lot of complexity too, right? Because you have yeah. to know what that code generator is generating. You, in, yeah. you know, what if your code generated code needs to call out to your to the logic code? You really shouldn't do that, and that and that's where you run into all these bump up against all these design issues. Right. And, and you're also going to have a system and, and with the, especially with the type data set, I'm, I'm not sure over time exactly what this is going to mean, but yeah, you either. will be more, you will be more fragile to changes in the uh, template that creates in which in the case of uh, Microsoft, it's, it's big glob of code. Yeah. But um, if Microsoft changes what a strongly typed data set looks like, they'll be more likely to break your code with a partial class than they would with a derived class, That's which right. is also supported, um, as I understand it, with the uh, strong type data set. I actually haven't had a chance to play with them a whole lot. Yeah. And uh, speaking of all of this stuff, our friend Rocky Latka is joining us uh, on the phone. Where are you, Rocky? Uh, today I am in sunny Minnesota. Oh, okay. Back at home? Yes. We found the sun earlier. We couldn't figure out where it was sunny. I knew it was sunny. Sunny in Minnesota. I knew it was sunny in the middle of the continent. It's beautiful here, so couldn't ask for better. It's raining on both coasts, apparently. Well, you've been listening, hanging out in the chat room, have you? I have. I've been listening all along here. Very interesting conversation. So I'm sure you have lots of things you'd like to talk about here, points you'd like to make. Well, I've got a a short list, anyway, of things that I thought... uh, you know, we're, we're interesting. Um, you know, first, first off, I suppose uh, that uh, the, the idea that the CSLA templates are, are kind of complex, eh, probably true. Um, but, but uh, you know, I think Kathleen did a nice thing with the, uh, you know, showing people how to do code generation. And I think, you know, the reality is that any complex business system ends up with a lot of code. Yeah. And being able to automate some sort of, uh, you know, the generation of some of that, at least, is really a powerful thing. So, yeah, that's, that's a, yeah. Seems like the two of you are sort of made for each other, you know, Code Gen and CSLA. But, but we also argue a lot. So, Rocky, you've been doing this. Uh, we were actually talking on the phone, on, on IAM, rather, about this type data set, code, partial class dilemma. What have you, uh, what have you learned about well, it's been kind of a mixed bag. I've been spending actually quite a bit of time on this uh, over the past, well, since TechEd, really. And uh, it, uh, it it's exciting and thrilling, and at the same time, it doesn't quite work. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm hoping that it's, uh, you know, that, that I'm running into problems with Beta 2 and that, you know, things will be resolved before release. But, so what are some of the issues? Well... Specifically, what I'm trying to do is, is take this idea of uh, partial classes attached to a data table and uh, really use them, as in, you know, build an application that, uh, you know, a person would be reasonably happy with in terms of, of editing data and viewing data and adding and removing data. And my goal in, in what I'm doing is to put all of the code all of the validation and any calculations and anything else like that uh, into the data table, basically trying to make it become a a smart data container. Mm -hmm. And you can do that to a reasonable degree because you get a column changing and a column 
changed event. Yeah. And uh, exactly what you guys were talking about, right? You can't override, but, but you can respond to events. And we're talking about real-time validation here is what we're talking about, right? Yes, right. Uh, essentially, as the user tabs off a field or moves from one cell to another in a grid, the value data binding puts the value directly into the data table. Yeah. And that triggers the column uh, changing event. Right. And and in my case, then, that triggers any validation or other business logic that I want to have occur at that point. And that works really quite well, um, except, like I said, there are, I've run into a couple quirks. Um, for instance, uh, the data grid allows the user to press escape or to, uh, there's a variety of other ways in which the user can trigger a rollback of any changes in the row. Mm. And so if you've been editing the row and uh, say that you've got an invalid value in one cell, uh, automatically a nice little error, uh, red error icon will show up, which yeah. is very nice, right? Error provider. And then you uh, hit the escape key, and the value gets reset to its original value, but the error icon stays. Yeah. And the reason it does that is because on, in the case of a rollback, uh, no events fire in the partial class. So, yeah, and it's, uh, I was just smiling listening, listening to what Kathleen was talking about because it's, it's, this is exactly the challenge. Partial classes are awesome but only if the generated code raises the right events. When if the generated code doesn't raise the right events at the right times, you're, you, they're useless. I mean, you, there is no way to work around or get in the middle of what's going on. Yeah, and I'm afraid that that touches back on, on one of my real core principles, and that is that Microsoft hasn't bought into yet. I, I hope they will soon, which is that you've got to be able to control that generated code, and we can't in the strong type data set. Yeah. And it really reduces its value because if we run into a wall, the wall is so big that you have to reverse engineer, the, we use a different word, of course, for the strong type data set into templates yourself. And if you were doing that, why were you doing it in the, using strong type data sets in the first place? So mm. we kind of need them to work really well if they're going to force us to use exactly their code. However well hidden, there should be a template somewhere. Yeah, yeah. And and I hope they'll be ready for that in Orcas because there's about 60 different places they could do that and improve the framework greatly. But mm. it's a big step for them, and it's going to take a while to get there. Well, and also it could be a, you know, a, it, they'd have to make it known that if you change the template, we don't support it. And how are they going to know if you've changed it? Oh, I think it'd be you easy know. for them to know. Yeah. <laughs> I well, I mean, when somebody that. calls for support, you know, the template isn't working and... I think, you know, maybe more than more often than we realize, I think Microsoft's very concerned about, you know, um, support. Yeah, I don't buy that, actually. I don't I do buy that they're worried about support. I don't buy that on the strong type data set that that's like that's more of an issue than today, because today, how do they know you didn't go in and change the code? Oh, that's true. So I think we can do some checksums and things to solve that problem if it becomes one they really want to solve. But mm. at this point, I think it's that the technology jump is so big because they'll do it at, at, at a very high level if they do it. And um, I don't know that we're all ready for that yet. And so I think there's just a lot of work and that they were doing other really good things on Whidbey and it just didn't make it. So, But it's it's interesting. And they've improved the strong type data set, too. So um, uh, you can do more with it. It's it's at least the the ones that I saw. I haven't worked with it recently. Um, but, Rocky, have you looked at deriving from the strong type data set and perhaps even uh, trying to yeah, get a hold of some of this? I've tried that myself. 
Have you tried that, I, Rocky? I have not. I've been, I, I went into this kind of, you know, basically, I, I'm kind of cynical like most of us, right? But I thought, hey, let's, no. <laughs> let's just give Microsoft the benefit of the doubt and, and assume that, that all of the marketing stuff about all the new data binding, let, let's just assume that it's as good as it sounds and see how far I can get. And uh, thus far, I haven't gotten very far. <laughs> well, I, on, on the good side, on the good side also, Rocky, though, um, if, if you wind up with this not being something that pans out real well, it is so much easier to bind to our custom collections and custom um, objects than it was before. Oh, that's absolutely true. And, and my real passion is absolutely still in the object-oriented space and CSLA and all that. I mean, that... The, the, in a, in a sense, this is, well, I wouldn't say it's a lark, but it's definitely um, you know, kind of a tangent for me. <laughs> hey, we have a good word for that now. Did you know? We get to che- steal a word from extreme programming, and now we can call it a spike. <laughs> if we call it a spike, we get paid for it. This is a spike. Ah. <laughs> Excellent. You know, I think... Th- I did try this, what you suggested, Kathleen, which was using a type data set as a base class. And I didn't get very far because I found that I was in casting hell. Um, okay. And I can't remember exactly what the implementations were that, that made me shake my head and say, no, nah, this is kind of stupid. Was that 2003 or 2005? 2003. 2003, forget it. Don't try it. Don't do this at home, children. It won't work. But I haven't tried it in 2005. And you're saying there's some more support for this um, now? Or? I saw, and, and like I said, I haven't looked at what's in beta 2. I saw some early stuff that, that they were going to work on this problem, that they understood that, that it was bad enough that we couldn't get to the generated code. It made it useless if we also couldn't derive from it. Hmm. And so they certainly had that. Um, on their radar, they did work on it. I didn't. I haven't looked at it. I'm sorry. Recently, so I just don't know what's in there. Rocky, have you looked at deriving from the new strong type data set? No, I haven't. Okay. Um, well, there's some homework for us for the next time yeah. we get together. And any alert <laughs> listeners who want to dabble around and let us know what they find, that's a good thing to do. Oh, there you go. There, that'll bring the conversation to its knees. Don't yeah, you think? When we all don't know <laughs> something, now what, now what do we do? <laughs> yeah, we've all yeah. Well, now we got to stop and go work on some code. Yeah. Right. See you guys. <laughs> well, Rocky, is there anything else that you want to uh, that you want to tell us that you've been that you're interested in these days that fits in with the topic we're talking about? Well, I guess I, I've been playing, and I think a lot of people have been playing with all of the same things that you're talking about in terms of of working with generics and finding out their their strengths and weaknesses and. Uh, you know, like Kathleen noted, um, you, you can use constraints on them, but you can never use operators because there's no interface that defines the plus operator right. or, or base type. And so it turns out that, that there are, there's an entire class of generic or, or what would have been called template in C++ that you just can't do. And so I spent some time trying to figure that out because I, I looked at... Uh, a couple of C-sharp workarounds for this where they tried to define an interface that had every operator. And uh, so it still doesn't actually work because you can't graft that interface onto an integer. Um, and interestingly enough, uh, VB has got a, an interesting answer. Whether it's good or bad, I guess I will leave up to the listener, but uh, late binding solves the problem. And a lot of those problems, um, Rocky, are related to the primitive types, aren't they? 
When we're, when we're working with something like a business object, like an invoice or a customer, we're not too likely to be using operators on the, on the object itself. So a lot of that's related to... One would think not. I, yeah. I, I got to say that, that it, while it is nice to have operator overloading, um, it, it's not all that useful in day-to-day life because as <laughs> you, you don't put it on a customer or an invoice. I mean, it's not something that's... Um, and, and so it doesn't impact this as much as you would expect. You're right. Right. And, you know, there's a couple other things on generics while we're on that that are things people might run into, and it's kind of nice to know they can't go there. Um, one of which is that if you create a new... Um, object, you do have to have your type with the constraint of new. And that has to be a parameterless constructor. It does not support parameter parameterized constructors. And there's also a class of things that if we could get around the operator problem, at least we'd want to do where we said, this is constrained to a numeric. I don't care if it's a floating point or a decimal yeah, or nice. an integer, but it needs to be a numeric. Well, we can't do that. And so there's a couple of things. There's a number of things there that we, we'd like to see work better. And, you know, it's generics will get better as they grow up. You want generic constraints now as well. Well, we have we have those. We have generic constraints. We we just kind of don't have constraints on the constraints. It's kind of I guess what we're where we're right. kind of halfway going. Well, Rocky, listen, uh, it was great to have you call in the show, and and I look forward to talking to you some more after uh, after our round ship time. After we've had a chance to really dig into this thing, and and we're all looking forward to CSLA.net two L. Oh yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. This was fun. All right, cool. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. So, Kathleen, I know that you are that you have uh, a stupid meter that things register <laughs> on once in a while. I, I think we all do. <laughs> I think we all have a stupid meter, and I think programmers are not paying enough attention to it. <laughs> so let me tell you what I mean by that, because I don't want anybody to think I'm saying you're stupid. And I just, like, fell over my pajamas, and I admitted that. So that's not what I'm talking about, really, with the stupid meter. <laughs> <laughs> What I'm talking about here is that we come up with things and, and there's sometimes things that like the world is like telling us there's something like extra moral if we do these things or something. And, and we're like rebelling and, and we just like re- refuse to do it. And I think that there's some really big ones that are out there and that if we recognize these, we can both help Microsoft make a better product and we can kind of understand why we're, we're sometimes not doing things we think we should. It's like, for instance, I talk about tracing and, and I'll talk and I'll talk to a room and I'll say, okay, who traces today? And people look so guilty. I mean, I wish I had photographs. They're like, oh, we know we should. No, you shouldn't. <laughs> tracing stinks. Tracing stinks in every language that we've, that I've ever seen up until 2005. It stinks. It's fancy print F. There's nothing. I mean, okay. Yeah. We sent some extra stuff with listeners in 2003. And tracing just to, you know, for people who don't know what it is. It's the way to basically, uh, like you, to, what am I trying to say? <laughs> ha he ha he. It's basically, <laughs> it's basically a way to output data in your program to a log or some other kind of you know log file or some other device, uh, so that you can look and see you know what happened in your code and when, and you can sort of uh, you know have have some diagnostic tools. That's what it's for. Yes. Well, and it, we used to just do it with printf, and now right. they're trying to give us tools that that do the printfs automatically. Debug but, print. Yeah. 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 But but in 2003, and, and I ask, you know, I'll start. I go into 2003, and I'll do a right line statement. So trace dot right line, and I'll say, okay, what should we put here? And you know, we get stuff like oops, and and what I like is yeah. oops 42, yeah. and that's my favorite one. <laughs> okay, so if you think about it, what? What you're saying is, I was at this point in the code. That's what you're trying to say. Okay, yeah. I was here. 
Um, and so what, what you actually do with that is you get this big file with all these that you have in it. You load it into Notepad, of all things. Right. If it's too big, you put it in WordPad. Gosh, that's a step up. <laughs> and you use the find feature to find Oops42 <laughs> to see whether or not it happened and when it may have happened. Yeah. That's craziness. It's absolute craziness. If you use a Notepad, your stupid meter should already be pegged. I mean... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I used, I'm, I hate to tell you this, but I use grep for that. Okay. So I can tell you I've had 17 oops 42s. Right. Okay, so we've moved forward here. We've gone from notepad <laughs> to grep. This is not constructive. It's not where we need to, we need to be with, with tracing because it's actually a very, very valuable feature. If you could actually say, oh, I was here, I was there, and you could instrument, you could put lines in your code, you're under control here, and you could stick stuff in there about what was going on, that would be extremely valuable during debugging. Um, and so it's a good thing. It just doesn't work in 2003. And uh, in 2005, we we fixed that. But but our when you say it doesn't is, work, I mean it works. It works. It just doesn't do what it should do. It doesn't work very well in the real world. There's yeah. not a way to get consistent output. There's not a way to give the control you need to the consumers. And really, that's one of the things about tracing is that tracing primitive. is about the consumer. You may be the consumer. A maintenance programmer in five years may be a consumer. A um, admin, a sysadmin may be the consumer of this information. And so different than most of the stuff we do within our code, we have a different set of consumers to think about. Okay. So the other one I love on the stupid meter is test-driven development. Let's all sit around and get drunk because we're so guilty that we're not doing test-driven development. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. I am doing test-driven development. And I swear, and, you know, this is, this, I wish this wasn't true because I really like test-driven development. But the first piece I did, I was um, actually doing some stuff where I was enabling buttons, and it was kind of a silly little job. But So the job in the application was pretty easy. So I wrote up some infrastructure for the, for the um, test-driven development, and I did all this work, and I got my tests ready, and then I went to write the code. Okay, So the code is like 25 or 30 lines, okay? So I'm doing metrics on this project uh, because I want to know what we're at. I swear, the lines of code in, test, in the test project, that side of it, 666. Mm. So we start out with the market dun, of the devil. Dun, dun. Really? I swear that's what it was. <laughs> you know, and I was Take just like, a hint. <laughs> I am the god of hellfire. I, I, got down to, I got down to where my incremental, so every time I'd write a new line of application code, I was only writing 1.6 new lines of test code, but I never got it down to the same. This is for a very simple problem, so a more complex problem, it might not be quite as much. And I'm not seeing anybody actually doing test-driven development. I mean, I'm seeing people trying, but it is too hard, and we've got to make it's it such easier. Such a change. It's such a change in the way you write code. It's not just a change in what you, the way you're writing code. You're adding perhaps four times as much work. You're adding, say, three to, you know, three to five times as much code, maybe twice as much code yeah. to the application. And you're going to your manager saying, I'm going to work a whole lot harder, and I'm going to make a better application. Now, I believe in test-driven development, but we have to bring it down an order of magnitude or two. And this is something that's going to require a lot of thought by a lot of smart people. I do think that there's some ways to do that. Um, I'm working on something called declarative unit testing. And what that is, is certain types of tests we know about. Okay, if we have a parameter that shouldn't be null, okay, we can say, hey, we already have an XML comment, which I think we should stop calling XML comments. Yeah. And the funny thing here is that I fought like heck to keep um, XML comments out of VB. Um, and now they're there and I'm using them. But it's because... What? Why? I didn't want them. <laughs> Why? Because... Angle bracket summary, angle bracket. A bunch of guns. It's too amorphous. It could be so, anything. No, no, no. There's no value over summary colon. 
Yeah. It's a bunch of extra right. gunk that he makes it hard to read for no value. So at any rate, but now it's there. And if we just think of it as XML metadata about our function, and that metadata can be used for whatever we want it to be. Sure. One of those things that we want it to be is documentation. And IntelliSense, yeah. And IntelliSense. We want those things. But we also, we can simply add a new attribute to the parameter um, tag that's already in there. You can do this in 2003. You should be able, I've got testing in mm-hmm. 2003. Now we can build a test for that null, which is the kind of test we're skipping today, actually, in test-driven development. It's a very important type of testing. Yeah. We can have, we should be raising a standard exception. We can build the test. We can do all this automatically. And that's actually work I wish a whole bunch of people start working on because I don't have time to do that. I mean, it's just too much. You know what else is the issue with test-driven development is if you're like me and you sort of architect and write at the same time, you know, you can't really do that with test-driven development. Well, you know, actually, you have to know what you're going to. You can't just sort of experiment around, you know, as the way you can with. There's an there's an extreme programming answer to that. I think it's important to share whether or not it's okay. it's reality or not. And that is what the word spiking actually does mean. I made a joke about it earlier, but that says that we will have times we're writing real application code using all the rules, including test-driven development. Mm-hmm. We'll have other time where we need to experiment. We need yeah. to dive. And we're diving off the diving board into the deep end, and that's spiking. And yeah. it is important. And my spiking code is going to wind up in my application. I mean, I'm just sure. not. It's going to happen. Sure. Yeah. Well, uh, okay. Now I ask everybody uh, who does my show these days, what's the coolest thing you've downloaded lately? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna give a plug here because it's um, I actually do think this is the coolest thing I've downloaded lately. But uh, if you go to ClarkDollar.com, you're uh, okay. gonna okay. Well, who Clark C L A R K Clark. I haven't been able to pronounce it well since I was a child. So, but ClarkDollar.com. You'll find some music, and this is uh, Clark and Clark and Clark and Clark, depending on how many tracks he used for the particular song. And it's um, it's it's music that is combining some of his life philosophy, uh, Zen based type stuff, Who and is this? music. It's my brother. Oh wow! <laughs> so okay. yeah, and it's it's pretty cool stuff, I think. And so I'm if really we could play happy. a clip from one of the songs here, which one should we uh, which one should we do? Oh gosh, uh, is one of them called lawnmower? Is the word lawnmower in one of them? Pick any if if there's not the word. There's lawnmower. thank you for breaking my heart. Oh, that's songs, that's kind of a cool one. Songs for the refrigerator door. Uh, thank you for breaking my heart. Something off of that. That's the the new one. And thank you for breaking my heart is a is a good song. Uh, oh, okay. These are the albums. All right. So yeah, there's... you start out with the albums and then it goes to. So so I should do the first one here. Uh, yeah. All right. Let's just listen to a little bit of it. Do you think he'll mind? No, I don't think he'll mind at all. And feel free to download the music if you want it. All right, hang on while it downloads here. Little plug for Clark. All right, here we go. I bet I'm the last person that you expected to call you on the telephone. After all we've been through, I just can't leave well enough alone. Got so much that I want to say, I just don't know where to start. I want to thank you for breaking my Hey, that's pretty good. Very cool. So. Yeah. I told you it was cool. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, and it, and it's uh, it sounds like a semi hollow body type guitar, steel plate guitar. It's uh, got a nice sound to yeah, it. Yeah, he's got a he's got a couple of really sweet guitars that he uses on the um on the thing, and he plays his own bass and things. And so there's a lot of interesting stuff on there. Awesome. Yeah, 
Awesome. So where are you headed to next? Well, um, Monday night, I'm at the Vermont User Group, which will be the night that this uh, comes out. And then uh, I'm at Montreal on Wednesday. I'm in Los Angeles August 1st. Um, And then in September, I'm doing a trip with um, September and October. I'm in Charleston, uh, Spartanburg, um, the Raleigh-Durham area, and um, one more. And then I might be doing Texas A&M as well. So I'm doing a couple of trips where I'm um, getting out and doing a a couple things. And I'm really enjoying the user groups and uh, talking to that. It's a lot of fun. Okay. Um, uh, are there any good resources you can recommend for people uh, who's, who are getting into this stuff? Generics, uh, co-gen, partial classes, all that stuff? Well, on, on tracing, there's a really good one that's very recent. And John Robbins um, has just put something. It's in the MSDN magazine, which means it should also be on, on uh, the internet on MSDN. Okay. And it's his column, and it's last month or the month before, and I'm sorry that I, I don't remember, but I think tracing is in the title. Okay. Um, he does a pretty good job of covering tracing. I think it was Bug Slayer, wasn't it? It's in his Bug Slayer column, yes. Yeah. And uh, I just don't remember which Bug Slayer column it's in. Okay. Um, there's a couple things that I would take further in terms of importance, but basically he covers the basics and starts giving you a, a view of it. But he doesn't understand why we need delimiters. We need delimiters. He says like the delimiter output is like, why would we need that? If you like it, use it. You like it because then you get to upgrade from Notepad to Excel and that's a really, really big step because you can do sorting and filtering. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, cool. And uh, anything else you want to say? Last minute words of wisdom before we say goodbye here? Uh, Get ready for 2005. It's absolutely huge. It is very, very good. It's a very positive, huge steps forward, but it's big. It's it's not a baby step. You're not going to get there overnight. The good thing is your code will, but you won't. You're going to have a lot of work to do and enjoy it because it's going to be a lot of fun. Awesome. Well, Kathleen, it was great to have you in the studio. It was great fun. All right. Well, on behalf of myself, Jeff Maciolik in the sound room, Richard Campbell in Vancouver, thanks for listening to .NET Rocks. You guys have a good week, and keep those flames coming. We need to laugh. All right? Thanks again. Yes, I'm a, a